you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. I'm a nerd. That's what I was telling everybody that was here. Uh, I'm not going to circle back to all the details, but I almost failed senior class video production because I used Dad's video editing computer. Uh, well, the way we were learning in class is you actually had two VCRs. If you don't know what a VCR is, it's okay. Uh, and you'd hit play on one of them and record on the other one, and then you would hit stop, and then you switch your tapes out, and it would take you like eight hours to make a 30-second commercial, but on your computer, uh, you could do this. I was part of that group who were the early adopters of smartphones. I had my uh, Palm Pilot, my Trio, my Blackberry, and then I got my first iPhone. Uh, I, I like to think I paved the way for the Big Bang Theory, that, that it is cool to be nerdy. But nerdy people usually have their things they're nerdy about, right? I like the hard sciences. I like those things that were Uh, mathematical or provable, things that you could say this is either right or wrong. Uh, For all my nerdiness, things like sociology and philosophy uh, were not my cup of tea ever. Dropped sociology three times at community college before I got a C in it. That's not good for a nerd. Uh, Philosophy of religion, not my favorite class in seminary. And history wasn't my favorite class either because it seemed to just be kind of this nebulous... uh, retelling of events that were shaped by whoever won, right? It's the winner gets to tell the story. Um, History was never my jam, but I married a nerd. Felsha is a nerd too, and history is her jam. When we went and saw Hamilton, she acted like she knew all this stuff because she remembered everything that happened in U.S. history. The last history book I opened was in community college during my criminal justice degree when I took, uh, literally it was American history for criminal justice majors. That's the last history thing I cracked until seminary. Uh, In seminary, we had to take two semesters of uh, history of Christianity. They had one class called Turning Points in Church History that combined it into one, but that was only for the other majors. We had to take two church history classes, and I found it tedious and boring and mind-numbing. We could could be over here doing Hebrew linguistics and tracing the movement of how we get shalom in Hebrew and you get salam in Arabic. But alas, we had to sit and wade through church history. I tell you all that so you'll give me grace. I am going to try to tell the story of church history uh, from its, its infancy to today, then convince you why we play a particular part within church history and make you excited enough about it to go out and do something. Do you think we can do that, okay? Okay. Church history theoretically begins uh, at Pentecost, right? We all hear that this is the birthday of the church. I like to argue that church history begins with the nation of Israel. That church history begins with uh, the grand tradition of our, our one God who uh, created and formed the universe, who, who did work through a nation and through a people, who have this whole history of God stepping into time and space, who then find its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, who takes on flesh, who uh, invites disciples, who teaches, who heals, who has this ministry, then who offers himself up for us, who dies and rises, 
who appears to the women and to the disciples, and then who ascends and sends his spirit uh, at Pentecost to give uh, breath to the church. This church that for the first uh, 75 years at least, maybe for the first 150, uh, only has one argument. Do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? You don't necessarily have to be ethnically Jewish, but do you need to be circumcised if you're a male? Do you need to if you're a Christian? Do you need to uh, keep the separation from the world? This is the grand argument for most of our New Testament epistles. This is the fight between the pillars of the church, Paul and Peter, and and, uh, what it means to be part of the way. They ultimately decide you don't have to become Jewish. If you are Jewish, that's great. Uh, You don't have to abandon this part of your heritage. Uh, But what it it means to be a Christian is to be in Christ. And for the first 200 years, that's enough. And then they begin to say, well, we've got to, to figure out. We need to figure out what it means if Jesus is fully God and fully human. So for the next few hundred years, they're going to wrestle with uh, this idea of Christ being fully both things. This does not seem intuitive, right? So they're, going to, they're actually going to create new words and, and write new creeds and find out ways to talk about uh, him being human and God. And for about the first 500 years, that's the only concern. They settle it with creeds, and then for the next 500 years, we begin to discuss what is the nature of the Spirit. Is the Spirit distinct completely from God the Father and from uh, Christ the Son? Is it, uh, does the Spirit come from the Father, or does it come from the Father and the Son? And at 10,000, not 10,000, 1,054, that had been a long time away, wouldn't it, Phil? 1,054, the church splits in two. We have... Uh, what becomes the Catholic Church saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we have what becomes the Orthodox Church saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. We have our first church split. 1,054 years uh, from the, uh, the, the changing of time from B.C. to A.D., 1,054 years before our first church split. They go about their business, each uh, tradition kind of going through. Uh, really, you are either uh, Catholic or you are uh, Orthodox. And uh, if you're not, you're a heretic. So these are your only options. It's really easy. You don't have to worry about what church is in town. Uh, so you just find the nearest house church and you go on with life. And this goes well uh, for about 500 years. And then in about 1500, a group looks up and goes, things have gone off the rails in what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there's this power in the, uh, the priestly class. There is a, uh, a kind of uh, corruption in um, how people understand salvation. You have to buy these things or do these things, and, and, and this isn't right. So we're going to reform the church. These are the great reformers, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, and Zwingli. Zwingli, my German is terrible. Somebody up here speaks better German than I do. When, when you're a nerd who takes theological German, you don't have to pronounce anything. You just have to translate. $1,500 for that that I can't use now. But uh, these reformers uh, reform the church. And what we have is the Protestant Reformation where we now have our next fracture. The church in the West splits in two. Uh, we have our Protestants and we have our Catholics. Real quietly, up here over in Great Britain, we have something else happen. 
Uh, whereas the uh, Protestant reformers wanted to reform over the solace, uh, faith alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone, uh, the church over here in England wants to split because the king wants to get a divorce and get remarried. So uh, the English Reformation happens for totally different reasons. Uh, the Pope is like, no, you can't do this. You, you, like, this is, this is what it is. And the king's like, well, I'll just make my own religion. This is not my own religion, but we'll, we'll separate off and we'll call it the Church of England. And it kind of becomes its own little tradition. It's reformed, but not because of these reformations. Over here in the Calvin and Luther pile, we uh, go through and we have things emerge like Lutheranism, like uh, Presbyterianism, like, um, how can I only think of two denominations? Uh, because I'm talking about this one over here. The Church of England is the one I want to talk about. We're going to follow this stream. This, uh, for about 250 years, uh, becomes... Uh, kind of a new expression of Protestant Christianity, and it quickly settles into uh, complacency. Along come the brothers Wesley. They have a mother who refuses to give up on them, who uh, literally like locks them in and uh, teaches them about God, who forms them and shapes them, and, and they become these Church of England ministers, they're, they're nerdy too. They keep like logic books beside their bed. They form holy clubs to talk about God. Uh, I think I could have really uh, resonated with some of their lifestyle. Uh, Wesley loved the foreign languages. It was just nerd heaven. We're going to reform the Church of England. This branch that started um, out of a king's desire for something we're going we're gonna to breathe life into it. And we're going to do it out here on the margins. The Church of England is this wealthy aristocracy, this, this comfortable bourgeoisie, and we're going to go out to the, the very openings of the mines. We're going to go out here to the graveyards and to the places where the, the, the steel workers eat lunch. And we're going to tell about the good news of a Christ who sets people free. And we're going we're gonna to do it with a spirit-filled belief that God is not done transforming people. And they go out and do these undignified street preachings and these things that horrify the, uh, the uh, upper-class clergy of the Church of England. And it goes on like this. They form structures and things and, and, and uh, build this kind of reform movement that is within the Church of England. And it's great, and it's great. But then as America is kind of getting its footing, the Methodists want to come over. But the Church of England won't send them with credentials for communion. And so Wesley is forced to to have another church split. Even though he remains Church of England, Anglican his whole life, he ordains the uh, Coke and Asbury, right? That's how we get Cokesbury. Coke and Asbury to go and be the first general uh, superintendents of the church in America. Uh, The Methodist church is born. 1780s, 1770s, somewhere in that range, uh, which to give you perspective, our downtown campus uh, uh, that has the old building. It was in 1908, but the church that actually uh, is all of First Church's heritage was founded in 1789. We're pretty early on this Methodist movement in America. It comes over with a grand plan. We're going to have classes, societies, and bands, groups who uh, do discipleship together, and we're going to follow Wesley's heart. And here's Wesley's heart, that we would experience the second act of grace. For much of the church, the first act of grace is that you are saved, right? We we use the language of saved, and and, uh, the technical language is justification. This is where we are made right in the standing before God. But for Wesley, it's just as important was the second act of grace, which was sanctification. 
This is the place where we're made perfect. The place where our hearts are set free from the powers of sin. The place where uh, we leave behind willful sin and recognize that there is still sin that will creep in and happen, but that is not the driver of our life. And Wesley believed that the way uh, we experience sanctification was solely through the grace of God. But being Methodist and methodical, being a nerd who liked systems and structures and plans, he ensured that his people would experience God's grace through uh, the means of grace. And for him, there were two types of means of grace. There were works of mercy and works of piety. So Wesley sent this group of, uh, of Christians into America uh, fueled with these two strands of grace. We're going to attend to the works of piety. We're going we're to gather for worship. We're going to come to communion as often as a circuit rider can get around to our location. We are going to uh, read scripture. We're going to pray and we're going to fast. But then just as important as these works of piety are these works of mercy. We're going to visit the prisoner. We're going to clothe the naked. We're going to give. We're going to ensure that the least and last are not lost. Uh, reform happens at the margins, um, and it became the very ethos of the people called Methodists that uh, we couldn't separate uh, works of piety from works of mercy. This is why, in Wesley's historic questions, we would ask things like, um, uh, "Is Christ alive to you today?" And so we wanted to interrogate, like, do you actually know the love of Christ right now? But at the same time, uh, one of your questions would be, do you pray about how you spend your money? Um, do, you, uh, do you use your time triflingly or for the good of others? It's why in our uh, kind of new expression of these questions, we ask the questions of both, how have you attended to the means of grace? What, what spiritual practices are you keeping? But have you done the good you can and avoided the evil you can? This is the heritage of of uh, the Wesleys in America. And, and what becomes in America becomes the holiness movement. This gives birth to what uh, eventually becomes scores of denominations as we split over lots of different things. The Assemblies of God, the Wesleyans, the Free Methodists, the AME, the Salvation Army, all come out of this holiness movement that hold together heart and, heart and mind and uh, faith and action. The church splits uh, over slavery. The church splits over the role of women in ministry. The church splits and the church splits and the church splits. But all together, we are the holiness tradition. Works of piety and works of mercy. As Christians, from day one, we're told that our job is to go out and make disciples of the world, baptizing them, and teaching them all that I command you, right? This is the great commission from Matthew 28. So this is what we're supposed to go and do. And I think across all Christian tradition, we would all understand that to be our mission, right? Churches don't really need catchy mission statements. But some version of go and make disciples across all of these denominations, across all of these schisms, is to go and make disciples. But how and in what way and with what focus becomes very much the flavor of your unique expression. And our flavor holds together piety and mercy. And I think in many ways ours is a beautiful picture that embraces the whole life of Christ. Some traditions uh, argue that really the gospel is that Christ died for you and set you free from sin. Our tradition says that uh, that is absolutely true, but you know what else? Christ, his kingdom matters now. 
And so uh, no matter where you are and what is going on, Christ is, is good news for you today. That if you are hurting or hungry or poor or broke or um, marginalized or, 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 there's good news for you. Uh, our text today in Luke 4 is, uh, uh, many argue, Jesus' mission statement, his very reason for coming. The Greek that says, uh, the Spirit is upon me, uh, to, uh, really should be translated, for the purposes of setting the prisoner free, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, and announcing that the year of the Lord's favor is at hand. This becomes the part of disciple-making that we get to embody that, that is our unique gift to the world, this, this second grace of sanctification, as we are made holy in uh, social, social holiness and personal holiness. As we hold together these two tensions that so many other traditions let go on both sides. When a church splits, we tend to see two things. We see the right go more fundamentalist, and we see the left go more heretical. When a church splits, we tend to see the right embrace piety, and the left embrace social justice. But when we are our best, when we are the holiness tradition, we hold these two in tension and hold them as the very markers of sanctification, as the very thing that Wesley dreamed that we could be. And friends, our world needs some holy people who also declare that God is here to liberate you and set you free. Do you believe that? I don't care what your job is. Look around at the people who come into your practice or come into your meetings or come into your stores or come into your offices or come into wherever you are. You don't have to look far to see some people who are beaten up by the world and who, uh, for many of them, see God as this uh, idea out there and over there that's about later on. And yet at the same time, there's so many people who uh, hear lots about uh, social uh, action and don't know that God is here to set our hearts free now from sin and death. The church has one mission, but we have a distinct flavor and a distinct gift, which is sola sanctus caritas, only holy love. This is love where Christ shapes and transforms us through the works of piety to then go out and do the works of mercy to declare the love of God to those we encounter at every turn. This is the yearning of my heart for us as a people. That each and every day our hearts would be stirred for personal holiness and for social holiness. That Every day uh, we would uh, attend to the means of grace, both uh, the ones that are works of piety and that are works of mercy. I believe if we take that seriously, uh, nothing can stop us and our world will be changed. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Loving God, you, uh, you took on flesh and uh, finished Israel's story. You understood your incarnation to be uh, a work of liberation. 
you modeled with your disciples and then uh, equipped us through the Spirit uh, to go and continue that ministry. To be a people of, uh, of personal and social holiness. People who are your hands and feet and doing the work of setting people free. Lord, would you give us a bold confidence to to lean into our heritage, to be distinctly Wesleyan, to yearn for the second act of grace, and then, Lord, will you uh, delight with us as we see the world changed? And we thank you that uh, we never uh, become uh, the ones who have to do, and instead we get to join in what you are doing. Fill us with your grace that we might go forth and be a people of holy love. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.